0: This is Global Mining News available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we have touched, we have crested above $2,000 gold intraday on July 31st, hitting an all time high of $2,005.40. We never got the close above $2,000, so that's why it was more of a whimper than a bang. But there is a full-fledged gold bull market going on, and silver is not performing too shabbily. In fact, all the precious metals are acting pretty impressively, and you see it in the earnings. It's also earnings season, and you know tech takes up a lot of the oxygen in the room, but wow, these gold mining companies really are crushing it. As well, it's a crazy business when you see your product just start commanding higher and higher prices with no end in sight for the time being. So we're going to take a look at earnings today. We have a few earnings stories. I'm just going to pass by a few of them. And coming up on this week's show, we have one of our feature interviews from the Canadian Mining Symposium with tech CEO and President Don Lindsay. And it's a really interesting interview. It was done by editor-in-chief Trish Saywell. And it asked Don about his career as a miner in Newfoundland. It also addresses how he sees China, how the company sees India, and how copper has taken a central role in tech strategy going forward. And as he says, we intend our copper business to be our largest business. And he talks about QB2, which is their main copper asset. And he also talks about the oil sands. And let's not forget that huge news story, Frontier Oil Sands Project, that was canceled a few months ago. And he also discusses ESG. So there's lots to chew on in this episode. So we're going to take a look at that. You also have a couple of interesting stories out of Chile. The regulators are threatening to shut down BHP's Escondida. Because apparently last year, they were using three times the water permit. And apparently they've been exceeding the water permit allowance for 15 years. So now they're being threatened with a shutdown and fines or whatever else. We also have another Rio Tinto story, which I always have a special eye for. And it's interesting, there's this huge world-class iron ore project in Guinea. It's called the Simandu Project, and it's been stalled for a while. But the Chinese have gotten involved, and now they're going to help fund this thing. I think it's half owned by Rio Tinto, half by the Chinese. Not exactly sure the entity. We'll take a closer look in the story. And and then there are calls in the Chilean parliament to privatize Codelco. So... All very interesting stories that we're going to look at here today. It is feeling like the dog days of summer, but with the gold bull market, it sort of gives you a little bit of extra energy, a little spring in your step, at least here at the Northern Miner podcast. You know, I've been thinking about where things stand right now. And remember in late March, they were talking about bridge financing right? This idea of putting the economy into suspended animation in order to get to the other side of the pandemic. And it seems like we don't hear about the bridge financing or because there is a sense that there is no other side to the bridge for the time being, or we don't know when we're going to get to the other side of that bridge. And it could be years for all we know could be two weeks. We could get a news story tomorrow. So it's not a bridge to nowhere. It's a bridge to who knows where. And so what's interesting about it is, and I, I guess this is what I'm thinking about, is the biggest enemy that governments are facing, let's call it the second biggest enemy. The biggest enemy is the virus. The second biggest enemy seems to be indifference. And You see it in the news stories of these governments all over the world telling their citizens to remain vigilant, fearing a second wave, threatening we may have to shut things down again. And I I mean, we see it in ourselves. At least I can only speak for myself. There's not the same kind of fear. And let's call it what it was in March and April. Like there was a real fear out there that if you left your house, you might get sick and die. (laughs) <laughs> you know i mean that was the underlying fear and frankly we're all starting to go out now and generally speaking people aren't getting sick i mean it's still a fairly small amount of the public that's actually getting sick so there is an indifference that happens the more you go out the more the less more nothing happens and you also see it in the congress with their financing of the 600 dollar top up for their you know unemployed and now that's dragging on a little bit. And there's not the same urgency that was there in March when there's even a little bit of bipartisanship when they all decided, OK, we need to bail out the economy. Here's whatever it was, $3 trillion or whatever the number was. So indifference, maybe that's very fitting. I mean, put it this way. This is my concern. And this is kind of my what I see happening before we continue is I see the summer as being a bit of a fake-out because everything kind of slows down in the summer a little bit, you know. So if business isn't pumping, you're, you know, generally the kids are out of school, and so there's almost a semblance of normality out there. And with that normality comes a sense of, uh, it's not so bad, right? But come September, if kids can't go to school, and all of a sudden, parents are facing what they faced in the spring and early summer when they had to homeschool, which frankly sounds like a universal disaster to anybody I know that has kids. It sounds like a universal disaster, like that, In you know, from talking with people with a lot of money to people with no money, and it sounds like it's easier for people with money, as it always is. It sounds really difficult. So that is a pretty staunting prospect uh, for the fall. So it could be a crazy fall. It feels like the calm before the storm. And maybe we should just enjoy every day of this nice, hot summer. I hope it's hot where you are. You know, it's a beautiful summer. Gold is uh, giving us something to talk about, something to think about. And uh, let's just enjoy it. Uh, you know, our mining companies are crushing it. And we're going to turn to that right now. So, without further ado, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at northernminer. And again, if you mention our stories or tweet out one of our links, we are 99% of the time, we are going to retweet that thing. As long as it's not too edgy, we are all over that. So, do find us on Twitter, get your name out there, share our content. And you can also find us on Facebook, and you can also find us on LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and also wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, and those numbers are starting to grow. So that's really exciting, too. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, let's look at these earnings. Let's start with that. Uh, Ignico Eagle, uh, bellwether. In the top tier, it is not the biggest, that's for sure. And it's a really well-run company. Let's see what Agnico Eagle is up to. We have a story from mining.com staff. Ignico uh, Eagle Mines reported on July 29th a near fourfold increase in quarterly profit owing to a surge in gold prices and a reduction in exploration costs during the second quarter of 2020. For the three-month period ended June 30th, the Canadian gold miner posted a net income of $105.3 million, or $0.43 per share, compared to $27.8 million, or $0.12 per share, a year earlier. So in Q2, Ignico last year made 20, let's say rounded up to $28 million U.S. This year, they made 105 million in the same time period. Now, the numbers are a little bit deceiving in the sense that they had all these other things. They had derivative gains on financial instruments of $16 million, foreign currency translation gains on deferred tax liabilities of $15.2 million, and various other adjustment losses and various other things. So excluding all these items would result in an adjusted net income of $44.3 million, which is still, and still, a 50% improvement from a year earlier. So if you look purely just at the business itself, without all the one-time costs, it's still a 50% improvement. Not quite as exciting as our first paragraph there, Uh, Cash provided by operating activities came to $162.6 million. As compared with the second quarter of 2019, when cash provided by operating activities was $126.3 million. So the story gets sort of like less exciting and less exciting. But let's not forget, the gold price has been rising all through Q2, okay? And already we're seeing pretty dramatic moves. So this is also a what we might think of as a harbinger of things to come with these companies. The increase in net income and cash was mainly due to higher average realized gold prices, as well as lower exploration and general and administrative expenses, partially offset by lower gold sales volume and temporary suspension cuts, the company said. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Officer Sean Boyd, quote, the second quarter was challenging, Given the global COVID 19 pandemic and its impact on our operations, while our business returned to normal production levels ahead of schedule in June, as late as June, we did have seven or eight mines on care and maintenance at one point during the quarter. He continues With the ramp up of operations now complete, and with July production expected to exceed 160,000 ounces of gold, the company is well positioned to have a strong second half with gold production expected to average 480,000 to 500,000 ounces per quarter with declining unit costs. So you see, yeah, and remember the interview that group publisher Anthony Vaccaro did with Sean Boyd, where he said they were about a 2 million ounce producer and that they're more than happy to just go up to 2.2 to 2.3 million ounces per year. You know they they don't need to add a million per year. They like strong, steady growth, and so we look. We do the math on this: four hundred eighty thousand to five hundred thousand ounces per quarter times four is close to two million ounces. So, very interesting. So it sounds like they're staying on track, aren't they? All unsustaining costs are unchanged, and capital expenditures are approximately six hundred ninety million dollars. So. That's a quick look at Igniko. So let's turn over to Newmont, another bellwether, a favorite, I think, a favorite of the hedge fund people. It's American. It's got a dividend. They get it. It's big. It's a proxy for gold. This is my sense of it. Newmont tops profit estimates on higher gold prices, and this is by Bruno Venditti of mining.com. Newmont said on July 29th that higher gold prices helped generate significant free cash flow in the second quarter of 2020, and the world's largest gold miner had adjusted net income for the June quarter of $261 million, compared with $92 million in the prior year quarter. So you see that. So last Q2 for Newmont, they made $92 million in net income and this year they made $261 million. Newmont's averaged realized gold price jumped about 31% to $1,724 per ounce in the second quarter ended June 30th. Its attributable gold production, however, fell 21% to 1.26 million ounces as coronavirus lockdowns led to the temporary closure of some of its mine sites. That sounds like quite a drop. Now, if we all recall, Barrick, is a 5 million ounce producer between 4.8 and 5.2. I think that might have dropped a little bit because of Pergara Trouble's in the Papua New Guinea. Maybe it's 4.6 to 5 now, I believe. And Newmont, I remember being in the 6 to 7 million ounce range, if I recall. So if they're down to 1.26 million ounces in Q2, sounds like they had quite a drop. That's basically on a 5 million ounce trajectory for the year, not a 6 or 7. So let's just see what they had to say. Tom Palmer, uh, chief executive officer, said, quote, We safely and efficiently executed restart plans at our mines previously in care and maintenance. And Newmont's world-class portfolio is well positioned to deliver an even stronger second half of 2020. It's almost the exact same language as Sean Boyd there a stronger second half of 2020. And it all makes sense, doesn't it? And he continues, the ongoing favorable gold price environment amplifies our free cash flow generation, yet our discipline around capital allocation will not change as we continue to invest in profitable projects. When you see this, you think of Jeffrey Christian saying, you know, I I remember him being asked once, I'm not sure if it was by Frick Ells of mining.com or on another podcast what he thought was going to happen with mining companies in M&A and he basically said i think they're going to make all the same mistakes as before they're going to overextend themselves they're going to grow too fast tom palmer is saying the opposite our discipline around capital allocation will not change as we continue to invest in profitable projects it's like he's addressing that criticism head on and just a final little detail here, Newmont plans to spend $45 million per month. I guess when you have that much money, you can, to maintain safety protocols at its mines in Mexico, Peru, and Argentina. And here we go. The miner's 2020 attributable gold production remains at about 6 million ounces. So they're a little bit bigger than Barrick. So that is Newmont. Okay. Similar story. Isn't it? It's it's not. It's it's a big jump in profits. It's just a matter of degree, and they they both expect a stronger Q2. So a nice little sample of the gold sector. I did want to look at this Cameco story because it's a different story. Cameco has lost sixty five million dollars in Q2, and we've been following Cameco kind of closely here. And this is by Jackson Chen of Mining.com. It's great they do these earnings reports at Mining.com, which are really nice to peruse. And remember, Cameco has this strategy where they shut down uh, their Cigar Lake mine. They have this strategy where they're buying off the spot market in order to reduce supply. And they're shutting down their mines because they actually find it just as cost-effective in some instances. They came out and said, we are going to restart our Cigar Lake mine, which they shut down for COVID in March or April, uh, which actually raised their stock price, and now they're going to restart it. Yeah, my impression was they put out this positive news about restarting their mine because they lost $65 million, which is a pretty significant amount of cash to bleed in a quarter. I mean, we think of the airlines and they say, oh, they're losing a million dollars a day, or I can't remember how much, well, maybe it was more, but $65 million is quite a bleed. So let's take a closer look at here. First of all, so they announced that they're reopening Cigar Lake and the restart of the mine, which has been placed on carry maintenance since March 23rd, will be dependent on several factors, including uh, the ability to establish safe and stable operating protocols, the availability of the necessary workforce, and how the COVID-19 pandemic plays out. Chief Executive Officer Tim Gitzel said that the decision to resume Cigar late was, quote, prudent, noting that the COVID-19 pandemic posed a greater risk to supply than to demand as the industry had become highly concentrated geographically and geologically. Meanwhile, Cameco reported a net loss of $53 million and an adjusted net loss of $65 million for the second quarter of 2020 impacted by additional care and maintenance costs of $37 million, resulting from the suspension of production at the Cigar Lake Mine, Blind River Refinery, and Port Hope UF6 conversion plant. Sounds like that shutdown was very expensive, doesn't it? $37 million to shut down their uranium mining and their conversion plant. So, and their refinery, like, yeah... uranium is a different beast and so yeah just the safety protocols it must be incredibly expensive and here's the spot market purchasing issue given the production interruptions at the cigar lake mine and at the inkai operations Cameco said it would increase its required spot market purchasing in 2020 to meet its delivery commitments and to maintain desired inventory levels So we could say they're doubling down a little bit on the spot market purchasing. Combined with the additional care and maintenance costs, the average unit cost of sales in the uranium segment would be higher than the company's previous estimate. We have one more quote here. We have the tools we need to deal with the current uncertain environment. We are well positioned to self-manage risks. We have $878 million in cash and short-term investments on our balance sheet and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility, which we do not anticipate. We will need to draw on this year. Just the fact that Tim Gitzel is mentioning the $1 billion undrawn credit facility, though, does have to raise some concerns. Like, let's just revisit the numbers $878 million in cash and short term investments. So that's not all, that doesn't sound like it's all liquid cash. $878 million in cash and short term investments. They just lost 65. I don't know, what is that, 7%, 6% of their cash on hand has disappeared. Now, they also, their tax dispute, they believe they have made progress on that, and they expect to recover $303 million in cash and $482 million in letters of credit secured with the CRA, Canadian Canada Revenue Agency, in relation to the dispute. That sounds like a pretty big case. That's turning into a lot of money. So that is the latest on Cameco. And so, yeah, very interesting to see how this develops for them because we, remember, we profiled their earnings call two months ago and it was quite fascinating to see their strategy and everything going on. It all sounded quite good. And all of a sudden, oh, they just lost $65 million. So that is Cameco. And let's turn to Rio Tinto. Chinese funding may resurrect Rio Tinto's troubled Samandu project in Guinea this is by Cecilia Jemazmi, Mining.com. Rio Tinto is once again discussing the development of the controversial large-scale Samandu Iron Ore project in Guinea as half-year earnings support an investment case for the steel-making material. Iron Ore once again made the lion's share of the world's second-biggest miner's profits for the first half of the year. The commodity has defied pessimistic predictions, climbing 19% this year to above $110 US a ton on the back of strong Chinese demand and supply disruptions in Brazil. And we have a quote from Jean-Sebastien Jacques, chief executive officer. Under all scenarios, Samandu will be developed with or without Rio Tinto. There is a huge incentive for the Chinese to make it happen now, he said, referring to increased industrial activity. In the country, Beijing is actively pushing forward with the project and a decision should come soon, according to sources familiar with the process. The state-owned Assets, Supervision, and Administration Commission, SASAC, which oversees the largest government-owned enterprises in China, is currently fine-tuning details. That includes how the project will be funded, the sources add. Jacques noted the company has been working with its Chinese partners to determine the costs of developing their half share of Samandu. The deposit is comprised of four blocks. Blocks 1 and 2 are controlled by a consortium backed by Chinese and Singaporean companies. Rio Tinto owns 45% of blocks 3 and 4, and China's ChinaLco. never heard of ChinaLco holding 39.95%, basically 40%, and the Ghanaian government 15%. For over a decade, Guinea's crown jewel deposit was caught up in wrangles between companies that held rights to it and authorities in the West African nation. And this is interesting. In 2008, one of Guinea's former dictators stripped Rio Tinto's rights over two of the four blocks the deposit had been divided on and handed them to Israeli billionaire Benny Steinmetz and his BSG resources. Rio was able to keep the two southern blocks but only after paying $700 million to the government in 2011. That guaranteed Rio Tinto tenure for the lifetime of the Samandu mine. That deal came under scrutiny in 2016, forcing the company to fire two senior managers over a questionable $10.5 million payment made to a consultant who helped the company secure the two blocks and alerted authorities, including the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.K.'s Serious Fraud Office. As you all know, I've been following Rio Tinto quite closely on this podcast because there is a pattern here. And so here it looks like they were flagged by the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.K.'s Serious Fraud Office for a questionable $10.5 million payment in 2016, not that long ago. Several investigations over bribery and corruption followed until a settlement between Steinmetz and Guinea was reached early last year, ending the bitter and long-dragged-out dispute involving Rio Tinto, Valet, and BSGR, which is Benny Steinmetz's BSG resources. As part of the agreement, Steinmetz's company agreed to walk away, that's BSGR, from the asset, but retained the right to mine the smaller Zagota deposit. And just to give you an idea of how big Samandu is, It says here it could dampen iron ore prices once it reaches full production. The deposit is not just massive, it holds 2 billion tons of iron ore, but the output is expected to have some of the highest grades in the industry. Sounds like a mountain of iron ore. Developing the rich ore under a jungle-covered mountain range presents additional challenges. You know, I'm not a geologist, but sometimes you do just get the sense that you get these mountains of metal, and this looks like it's... One of those, Pasqualama, near Argentina and Chile's border. The financial burden of building a 650-kilometer railroad stretched across Guinea to ports has always been a roadblock for developers. Estimates peg the cost at as much as $13 billion. However, with Chinese funding, the project becomes much more feasible. So that is another Rio Tinto story of questionable conduct, although that was back in 2016. And finally... Speaking of questionable conduct, it's a bit of our ESG segment here at the end. Chilean regulator threatens to shut down BHP's Escondida for exceeding its water permit allowance. And this is also by Cecilia Gimazmi of Mining.com. Chile's environmental watchdog said it would charge BHP's Escondida copper mine, the world's largest, at that, the world's largest copper mine, withdrawing more water than its permits allowed for nearly 15 years. The Superintendency of the Environment, SMA, said the operation had caused a decrease in the water table levels greater than 25 centimeters, which is the allowed limit in the Atacama Desert, the world's driest where Escondida is located, have major water issues over in Chile. The regulator said the charge against BHP's copper mine could result in the revocation of its environmental permit, closure of the operation, or a fine. The company, despite committing to reduce its extraction of water, exceeded the maximum level permitted since 2005, tripling that level in 2019. So for the last 15 years, they have exceeded their water permit allowance and they tripled it in 2019, the SMA said. That's what the SMA is saying. The news comes on the heels of a top environmental court's call for a government-vetted water study, which, which would help address lingering questions on mining sustainability in northern Chile. Yeah, so you can read about that. They're trying to pipe in water from the ocean into Chile. BHP already gets 40% of the water in the ocean. You can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. And with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on over there. metal prices we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com who provide us now with these prices each and every week and if you ever want to find them online just go to mining.com slash markets and on august 4th gold is trading at one thousand nine hundred and seventy three dollars and 96 cents that is 45 dollars higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $24.30 per ounce. That is $0.74 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $929.44 per ounce, and that is almost unchanged. That is $0.48 cents lower than last week. And palladium is trading at 2000 per ounce. That is $177 lower than last week. And on July 31st, copper is trading at $2.92 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week's quote. And aluminum is also trading a penny higher at 76 cents per pound. Lead is two cents higher At $0.84 per pound. And nickel is really taking off at $6.24 per pound. That is $0.15 higher than last week's quote. And tin also making moves. It's at $8.11 per pound. That is $0.08 higher than last week. And cobalt also turning up at $13.18 per pound. That is $0.25 higher than last week. And zinc breaks a dollar to a dollar four, which is four cents higher than last week's quote. So, what do we see? I see gold higher, silver higher, platinum unchanged, palladium lower, copper, and your industrial metals, for the most part, are consolidating or really going higher, particularly nickel and tin and zinc. So, interesting developments in the metals market as everything continues to climb higher. And coming up, Trish Saywell's interview with tech president and CEO, Don Lindsay. And it's a very wide-ranging interview, and they go across several topics. And tech has been in the news with their oil sands project a few months ago. And Don Lindsay made a big speech in the U.S. on how the company is pivoting towards copper. And that comes up in this interview. So without further ado, here is Don Lindsay being interviewed by Trish Saywell at the Canadian Mining Symposium on June 17th, 2020. I hope you enjoy it and we'll see you on the other side.
1: Very excited to have Don Lindsay with us today.
2: Hey Trish, how are you?
1: Good, good. I understand you're calling in from the uh, Fording River uh, steel making coal operations in Elk Valley.
2: I certainly am. I'm delighted to be here. In fact, I'm on a bit of a tour. I was at Highland Valley Copper yesterday and our trail operations I'm at Fording River now and by this afternoon I'll be at Elk So, great uh, couple of days.
1: Well, I don't think tech needs a lot of introduction. It's Canada's largest diversified mining company. You've been there since 2005. But I wonder if you could indulge us a little bit and, and, and go back to your teenager years uh, and talk about uh, how you chose to, to study mining engineering. I know you grew up in Toronto. Your dad was a doctor. I think your mom wanted you to study medicine, but you, you decided to study mining engineering. How did that happen?
2: Well, actually, it goes back to 1968 uh, when I visited my first mine. I was on a canoe trip with my father. and. You know, we, we did a lot of canoeing up at uh, the cottage north of Toronto, and in this particular case uh, he and I, because I have five sisters, the male bonding kind of thing in the family happened when we went on canoe trips. This one was on Lake Tomogamy, and we happened to paddle by the island where Temagami copper that uh, my current retired chairman's father, Norm Keeble Senior, had discovered back in the 50s. Uh, 28% copper at the time, and I actually still have a sample from that mine visit when I was 10 years old that's on my desk uh, back in Vancouver. So that's sort of got what got me interested in mining. And the next year, 1969, I bought my first mining stock, which was a company called Leach Gold Mines. And again, the chairman of that company was Norman Keeble Sr. and Norman B. Keeble uh, was a vice president there. And that company, uh, I bought two shares of it uh, with my paper route money, uh, $2.30 each. It was uh, in a lawsuit, a claim staking dispute with a company called Texas Gulf, and it was over the Kid Creek discovery, the big copper zinc discovery at that time. And if they'd won the lawsuit, the shares were supposed to go to $80 a share. You know, I would have had $160 at, you know, 10 or 11 years old and like, do like, you know how many bicycles you could buy for that? It would have been the bicycle king in the neighborhood. It would have been fun. But you know what? We lost. And I think it's always good to lose money in your first investment so that you know that that's a real possibility and uh, it's a good lesson. So anyway, but that got me interested and you know, it's been a lifelong passion since then.
1: And then after you graduated from Queens, you spent some time in the industry. You worked for the Iron Ore Company of Canada, Newfoundland and at Uranium City. What were some of the highlights of those years and how did they position you well for your next jump in your career in 1984 when you were at CIBC?
2: My first real job in the industry was working underground in Uranium City for uh, uh, the predecessor to what's Cameco today. And uh, that, that was an eye-opener, of course, for anybody in their first experience working underground. Uh, uh, a lot to learn, that's for sure. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, tricks that the old hands will play on you and that's, that's part of the game, right? And you know, at, at Labrador City, um, I remember I arrived on September 2nd, 1980, four o'clock in the afternoon, and by midnight that night, I was a foreman in the, in the small wood mine you know with 25 steel workers guys uh three shovels a couple of drills uh, all sorts of electro haul trucks 110 ton trucks at the time and you know i was completely lost i had no idea what, what was going on which way it was up uh but you get thrown in and, and you figure it out and uh and you know they have all sorts of ways of initiating it when you're when you're that green uh, and you're an engineer and the rest of it but if you make it from september to christmas by Christmas. They adopt you uh, as family for life. The Newfoundlanders just just fabulous people, and uh, that was a very special time.
1: And didn't you say that you actually learned every single piece of equipment?
2: Well, I did. You know, um, on night shift, you know, the focus always was you. You leave a lot, a lot of the sort of maintenance, kind of uh, housekeeping duties for day shift to do. On night shift, you just focus on on production and as a foreman, then you've got a bit more time in your hand. And I was determined to learn how to operate each each piece of equipment. You know, you'd never do that today. It's against every safety rule that you can imagine, but you know, <laughs> uh, but the, they were delighted to show me, right? Just the fact that you were interested uh, in what they were doing and, and you wanted to learn about it, and, and it was a valuable experience. I mean, I can tell you, I'm here at Fording River today, and, uh, you know, if, if I go on a shovel or a truck with people and stuff and talk about what it was like in the old days, I mean, things that the technology have done since then, that I remember when I was a drill foreman and, you know, in the middle of winter and you're spotting a drill and you're looking for like a little wooden stake in the snow or something, now it's all GPS. But GPS didn't exist back then, but, but uh, we have fun uh, uh, comparing notes and telling the old stories. So I really enjoy uh, to dealing with the operators today and, and uh, seeing what their challenges are.
1: Well, you're right. I mean, that wouldn't have happened in today's time that you would have had a chance to do all of that.
2: That was a good experience, yeah.
1: And so when you joined CIBC, you actually founded the mining group there. How did that come to pass? And how did those years?
2: At the time, the way the industry was structured, every partner in a firm, um, this was Wood Gundy that CIBC eventually took over, but there was uh, diminished securities that the Royal Bank took over. Each of the partners would have sort of one of everything. They'd have a... A bank is a client, a forest products company, an oil and gas company, a power and utility, you know, you know, a telecom company. And that's how they did their coverage. And they were selling market information. But because they knew I had a mining background, they would put me on all the mining accounts. Well what would happen is then then eventually the CEO of that mining company would realize that there was someone on the team that knew something, that was passionately interested, and a dialogue would form, a relationship would form. So after a couple of years, of that I, I put together just a short business plan, a four pager, and said, "Why don't you let me start a mining group?" They didn't exist in those days, and so they did. They they uh, t- took a flyer that bet on me, and it was me full time, and and Warren Gilman half time, and then within you know a few months he was full time, and then we added people, and we built it up uh, into a global mining group where we had offices in Toronto, New York, Vancouver, Sydney, Australia, and and uh, London, of course. And, and uh, about 80 people out uh, by the time I, I moved on, but it was a really exciting time to sort of build up an experience and just the passion for the industry, you know, at that stage, there was no internet at the beginning, right? That didn't come to a little later. So if we traveled to Australia and met with 20 Australian mining companies, came back to Toronto and go to Alf Powis or Bill James, we could tell them what, like, what was going on there because it wasn't as readily available. Now uh, the information is just uh, click, click and you've got it. But that, that didn't exist at that stage. So we were a
1: bit of a communications channel. And that position gave you the chance to really dig deep into the Asian markets. Those years at CIBC from 1984 to 2005 when you joined Tech, I mean, your understanding of a- the Asian metal markets uh, is unsurpassed. How did that help you at Tech?
2: Yeah, It was lucky because uh, um, because of all the visits to Asia I did for the Global Mining Group eventually an opportunity came along to be head of the asia pacific region for cibc and you know we had offices in beijing and shanghai but hong kong singapore uh, uh, sydney and so on um, and so i had to go there pretty much every month in one form or another and then you want you tracked it as the years went by you could see the development you could sense that china was just going to boom i'd had several visits to china long before that started to happen so then when i moved to tech Tech didn't sell very much to China, but you could see that China was still gonna have a huge impact on the company just because it's the marginal buyer of everything. You know, Almost every commodity, 50% of it goes to China. So how the Chinese economy is doing would have a big impact on what our revenues, operating profits and what investments we should make. So um, within my first year, I, I organized a trip for the whole board to go to China and take them through so they could see uh, what I was talking about. And until you see it, you know, you never really get a feel for it. And then, what's really important is you got to keep going back and seeing how it changes. I remember one time, this was before the Beijing Olympics in 2008. I was there with a colleague, and we were sitting there. Um, uh, we were standing at the uh, uh, you know the entrance of a hotel. We were about to go someplace, and Doug said to me, "So, do you, you notice know, anything different?" I said, well, "What do you mean?" i like, "Everything's different." He says, "You know, they changed all the taxis." Oh, that's right. All of the taxis in Beijing had just changed to these these hybrids that like, just, just like that, there used to be these old, really old terrible things and then boom, it was all cleaned up, brand new taxis and all the taxi drivers had to speak English, It was just, just done, you know? And, and so these are the kind of things that you saw happening and you knew that they were gonna be successful.
1: It's interesting with that background. I mean, I, I, five or six years ago, tech took the strategic decision to reduce your steel making coal exports to China, I believe, from about 35% of total production down to, I think less than 10% now. And at the mm-hmm. same time, boost your exports to India which looking back was a pretty smart move. Um, do you want to talk about that decision and how that's helped tech?
2: There are two parts to that. The first was I was worried that we were overexposed to China and because we all all have Chinese price risk, as I said earlier, you know, they're the marginal buyer of everything. I didn't want to have uh, that much Chinese commercial risk, volume risk at the same time. And so we, we took the decision that over time to gradually reduce the volume so that it was a, a manageable thing. And we're sort of 8 to 10% now. And, and you know we, we could sell more of it if that's how the market evolves. But I think it's a good balance. Meanwhile, we saw what had happened in China and thought, saw India opening up. And I thought, I thought you know, we got to get there earlier. Like it took us... number of years to build up such strong relationships with China. As you know, the Chinese government through China Investment Corporation their Southern Wealth Fund is our largest shareholder in the B shares at 11%. We have a really good relationship with them and good relationship with a number of institutions there. So I want to do the same in India. So we we took the decision to take a large group, uh, 25 people to India for a week or 10 days and really learn about the country, not just visit potential customers, learn about the cultures, the government, and The different stakeholders and I wanted to have a critical mass within the company where after people came back we keep talking about it and following it and seeing the opportunity. Mm -hmm. At the time we only sold 250,000 tons to India and um, while we were a bit early it took a couple of years before it got going but today we're over 4 million tons uh, to India and it's in fact larger than China and uh, you know but you could see that that was starting to come and the difference is this that you know China has a lot of metallurgical coal, I mean, you know, 500 million tons a year or more. Uh, They supplement it by imports from the seaborne market, which is very high quality. Uh, But India doesn't have it, right? They absolutely need it. And India's steel industry, the government has a policy that they want to go from roughly 100, 110 million tons today to 300 million tons by the year 2030. That's big. To do that, they would need about 80 million tons of imports, which is like adding two Chinas all in, in 10 years. So getting a good presence there, getting to know the customers, building relationships was really important. And so that that gives us a balance. The other thing that India has recognized is that, you know, with climate change and so on, they believe that the odds of the, the cyclones hitting Australia that we've seen, you know, three big ones in the last eight or nine years, they believe that that could happen every other year going forward. And if that's the case, they want to diversify their risk because they get so much of their, their supply from Australia right now, I think it's over 75%. And so they'd like to get more from canada and um you know we're the largest player in canada so that's one of the reasons why uh, we've had the the, their minister of steel come and visit our mines. has been probably sitting right here where i'm sitting today and uh so yeah that's become an important part of our business
1: now you've often said that steel making coal is 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 a great business for tech and i think it makes up about half of your revenues do you see that sort of percentage of your overall portfolio staying the same with steel making coal i know you're using a lot of your revenues from that business and your zinc business to fuel your copper business. So where, where do you see steel making coal in the future for tech?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a core business and it's it's one of the best mining businesses in the world. We've got hundred years of resources. It's in a great geopolitical jurisdiction, nicely positioned on the cost curve, high quality product, high margin product. So, you know, free cash flow for decades to come. Great business. But we never intended it to be 50% or more depending on the quarter and what, what prices are. And in fact, we are um, taking cash flows from both that great steel making coal business and our very high quality zinc business. We think we have the highest quality zinc business in the world and the cash flows from them going into copper. Because if you look at what's happening in the world, you know, the whole decarbonization trend, it is here to stay. And the associated electrification with that is going to require a lot more copper. Plus, Plus, you know, one of the, the, the effects of uh, the COVID-19 crisis has been a, a greater awareness of the antimicrobial properties of copper. You know, the coronavirus on a copper surface, 99.9% of them die within two to four hours, whereas a, on a wooden surface like this desk or, or, or cardboard or, or, or stainless steel, they live for days. You know, and so infrastructure, public transit, doorknobs, hospital bed railings and, and intra- intravenous stands, countertops, nursing countertops, you can get, a, you get a, a high touch surface, you can make a copper composite material, looks just like a normal counter, but the virus dies on it. And we've done that, Tech has sponsored that in five different hospitals now in their intensive care units, uh, starting with Vancouver General Hospital. Great results, it reduces the infections, reduces fatalities, uh, reduces maintenance costs. So that's such a uh, compelling case that there's going to be more demand for copper. So over time, we think that what well, we think we intend our copper business to be the largest business. Core to that, of course, is QB2, which uh, you know is under construction now in Chile, and that'll add um, 315,000 tons of copper concentrate per year from the start. But it, it's a massive ore body. We have published over seven billion tons. Now we know it's going to ten and so uh, 100 years resources uh, you'll see qb3 qb4 and that will continue to grow into what we believe will be one of the top five copper mines in the world so ultimately copper will be our our largest business by far
1: it's it's an incredible asset i mean the 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 mine life of 100 years or so but also you were saying that it's got one of the lowest strip ratios of any copper mine in the world
2: well certainly compared to all the 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 benchmark competitors you'd see there like uh, the, the strip ratio for the first 25 years is 0.7 to 1, and for life of mine, it's 0.8 to 1. and That compares to Koliwasi next door, it is over three, I think it's 3.4 to 1, Escondida I think it's around 2.6, Antamina is over three, so, so so those mines have to move four times as much rock to put one ton of ore through the mill. Think about that, 4 to 1, that's a structural advantage that QB2 is going to have uh, you know, throughout its life. And also the terrain is such that it's very expandable sometimes you get constraints like Antamina, the steepness of things and um, other, other uh, uh, lines mines I can think of where it's not that easy to expand, but uh, in QB's case, it will be. So this is something that once uh, QB2 is built, you just know that over that over a 10 year period, you're gonna see it continue to grow. And, and, and that could be just core to tech strategy for decades to come.
1: You mentioned zinc earlier uh it's about 17 percent of your gross profit last year do you see zinc, i mean you've got one of the largest zinc mines in the world red dog where do you see zinc is that going to stay sort of the same amount
2: we look at zinc as as stable in terms of the size of the business you know we're not the largest in the world but we're probably second or third from that point of view, and very high quality. Our zinc units are coming from Red Dog, as you say, which may be the best zinc mine in the world, and Antomino, uh, you know, which in different parts of its mine plant can be a huge zinc producer. And then Trail is a low cost conversion, you know, with clean power. So um, very high quality business. Uh, again, cash flow uh, year in, year out for decades to come. We think it's about the right size, and uh, we think the future for zinc has a uh, very promising aspects to it as the the battery uh, component of the demand for zinc is likely to grow. Um, There are a number of technologies, a number of companies have been working on zinc air batteries, which would be ideal to convert uh, solar and wind power into something that's more sustainable 24 hours a day. And that's the key uh, to to really the energy transition that everybody's talking about. That will make a big difference and we think will help drive demand for zinc. So it's a core business for sure.
1: Now in the oil sands, you know, earlier this year in February, it sounds, it feels like a lifetime away now, but uh, you chose to withdraw your applications for the Frontier Project, and you're still invested in the Fort Hills. Where do you see the oil sector in your overall uh, future?
2: Well, you know, when we went into the business in 2006, it was a different world at that time. Four of the 10 largest market cap companies were oil sands companies. Mm -hmm. You know, peak oil was the theory of the day, oil was over $100 a barrel, and it was a great hedge on our diesel that we consumed, a great geopolitical region, you know, Alberta is a fantastic place to do business, 50-year resource, so, uh, you know, you'd be able to catch uh, many cycles, um, and uh, no particular technology risk, but technology upside, which proved to be the case with Fort Hills, that using the paraffinic cross-treatment technology that the, the low carbon emissions per barrel of oil has been very, very important uh, to that project. And Port Hills has been a tremendous engineering success in terms of uh, you know, the startup and, and hitting design capacity. 80% of projects of that scope, $18 billion, uh, never hit design capacity. And this one did, the third train started up and, and uh, it hit design capacity within three weeks. And by the end of the year, the last month that it was allowed to run at full capacity before the caps on production came in in Alberta, it averaged 104% uh, capacity utilization and $23 Canadian cash cost per barrel. So, great asset from that point of view. But, of course, um, the pipelines never got built. Uh, they're, they're, you know, Transmountain's under construction now. We look forward to that. And then, of course, the, the production caps were put in. And then, of course, the war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, oil price war. And, and next thing you know, we actually had negative oil prices briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, But we've seen quite a recovery in the last few weeks. The price of Western Canada Select, which is the oil price we receive, has actually increased uh, in Canadian dollars by $40 a barrel in five or six weeks. So things can come back pretty fast. And and we know that that asset has the capability of making $700 to $900 million of EBITDA per year, which would be one of our top three assets. So in terms of having done it, we know why we did it and, and the circumstances of the time certainly made a lot of sense then. However, over time the world has evolved and there's no doubt that um, you know, the world's looking for an energy transition away from carbon and uh, it may be that um, that tech resources shareholders may not you know, uh, realize the value for the investment in Fort Hills within the tech resources share price. If we determine that to be the case, then we won't hesitate to do a transaction where it gets separated out and owned in a different form. And whether that's an outright sale, whether that's a contribution of the asset into another company taking back shares, whether it's a spin out, all that remains to be determined. And you know, you don't rush to do these things when the world's going through a COVID-19 crisis, of course, but uh, you know, there will be a lot of value there at some point, but we'll, we'll watch carefully to see what makes most sense.
1: Uh, moving to ESG, now tech's been an early leader on ESG and you, you, you support the carbon tax and you're trying to reduce your emissions by 33% by 2030 and then you want to be carbon neutral by 2050. How realistic are those targets do you think?
2: Well, one of the things that was important to me when we made that announcement, particularly the 2050, is we wanted to simultaneously announce a demonstration that it was possible. And so on the same day we announced that we were converting half of the energy that's going to go into QB2 from coal-fired uh, power to uh, to green power, uh, to, to solar and wind. And uh, that's a big a big chunk of power that uh, will now be uh, clean and green. And we think that we can get to 100% much sooner than like we originally thought we'd try and do that within five years. We think we can get there even sooner than that. So that shows that it's possible. And this has been sort of deeply ingrained in our company. We're now on our third set. Sustainability goals. We did the first set in 2010 of five and 20-year goals. Uh, I I worked very intensely with the team on that to set goals that were, you know, stretch targets, realistic, that would be totally transparent. Reporting each year, letting everybody come in, seeing what we're doing. And uh, we did it again in 2015, and we did it again this year, which we published uh, uh, just a couple months ago. Our new goals for for five years and 20 years from now, including with the 2050 goal of uh, of carbon neutral. So it's real and, and it's something we've got to do. Uh, this is, you know, you mentioned Frontier. One of the things about Frontier is it was part of the energy transition too. Its carbon emissions per barrel were one third of what's operating today and they ranked in, in the middle of the pack of all the oil that's refined and consumed in North America. And so if you believe in energy transition, which I do, and you believe that the world has just got to reduce. It's carbon footprint. Then you know, but you know that you can't do it just going to zero in oil right away. Then that's the kind of uh, investment that you want to see being made. Unfortunately, you know, Canada has a few issues that it's got to deal with before that can go forward. But, uh, but in terms of tech, you know, we're not going to wait. We can make those investments now. We can, we can get on with achieving those goals, and and that's what we're
1: doing. It has been
2: recognized, as you say, you know, we're we're ranked number one in sustainability in our industry by the Dow Jones uh, Sustainability Index. We're the only mining company on the global 100 most sustainable companies. And just last week, we had our annual uh, sustainability call with investors. And uh, we had said that we were tied for second in the Sustainalytics rankings. And then the guy from Sustainalytics, going on our call, he said, I want to correct something you said. And I'm thinking, oh, uh, what have we done? And uh, he said, Because you're not tied for second, you're first. So we're, we're, we're leading in Sustainalytics too. So we're pleased with that. But we know that there's all sorts of companies out there. That are are they're raising their bar every year, and and they, they and and that's good, you know. And if they, they're trying to pass us, and so we're going to try and stay ahead of them, and that's good for everybody.
1: You're also taking some initiatives on the waterfront, right? In water scarce areas, shifting.
2: Yeah, very much so. And with QB two, we made the decision some time ago, and it was something I was absolutely personally involved in. Is you know we're building a, de- a desalination plant, and the water's coming coming from the ocean. Now, and uh, we did have the rights to a certain level of water drop from the solar, but uh, we just didn't want to interfere with that and, and we went the other direction. So. And I think that's the way the industry's going.
1: Just to wrap up, I mean, you know, tech had a record year in 2018 and then sort of everything kind of fell apart in 2019 with the China trade wars and, you know, it, it was a tough year for everybody in the, but in the industry. But the beauty of tech is that you've got these long life, low cost assets, which can sort of survive multi-commodity cycles. So, I mean, are you feeling optimistic? I mean, there are things that are beyond our control in the industry.
2: Uh, I do look at the glasses half full. I mean, the uh, the world, you know, the world always fixes itself. It always does. And it will again this time. And certainly, this has been a crisis like none of us have ever seen in our lifetime. But I, I also see all sorts of good things happening that show that the the world's get, getting its collective arms around the issue and learning how to operate with it, and a vaccine will come. I, I have confidence in that. And we've seen some good news on that lately. And it is true. Like a, a year ago, at investor conferences, we were announcing record revenues, recordy, but uh, record earnings. You know, uh, debt had been reduced from 7.2 billion US to 3.2, and no maturities of significance till the year 2035. We de-risked QB2. Done a great deal with Sumitomo Metal Mining. In put $2.5 billion US project finance in place to finance the construction and that, that won awards. Uh, we were ranked number one in sustainability, we had our best safety year ever. You know, the, the company was in, in terrific shape, as strong as we've ever seen it. In the course of 12 months, first you get the trade war started uh, literally in May of last year, then we had an intense ESG focus on the company and all things coal where you've got a tremendous focus from investors uh, and they weren't distinguishing between the steel-making coal, which the world absolutely needs for a low-carbon future versus the thermal coal, which, which it doesn't. There are alternatives. And then we had the oil war between Saudi and, and, and uh, Russia and then COVID hit. And what that did is it took the key commodities that we produce, steel-making coal, down 53%. That's the price. But the margins in our largest business went down 93%. And in zinc, zinc hit the 60th percentile and the cost curve margins went down over 50 percent. Copper, they only went down 28%. Copper's come back pretty fast, which is very encouraging. But in, in, in Western Canada Select, we went from the positive margins of seven bucks a barrel to negative twenty-five bucks a barrel for every barrel we produce. So yeah, we were hit pretty hard. So, and there was a, a mix of experience. Remember, the iron ore, guys, iron ore has gone up. It's gone up substantially. And gold has gone up thirty percent from thirteen hundred to seventeen hundred and something, you know. And so we did some arithmetic, for example, in iron ore. Had iron ore had the same performance as steel making coal, iron ore would be thirty-four bucks a ton today. Can you imagine how Rio Tinto and BHP and Fortescue would feel about that? You know, if gold had, had the same performance, instead of going from thirteen hundred to seventeen hundred, gold would be six hundred and five dollars an ounce today. And you know, Newmont and Barrack might be having a bit of a different experience. So like, uh, it hasn't all been equal with COVID 19. Some have done well and some others. But you know what? Uh, the cycle turns and we've seen it before. In, in, in 2015, 2016, coal was under tremendous pressure and benchmark prices got down to $81. And then in four months, they were 300 And so these things have happened before they'll happen again.
0: interview with Don Lindsay by editor-in-chief Trish Saywell. Shows he's a pretty thoughtful guy. Very interesting to hear perspectives on the environment, oil, a real interesting snapshot of a Canadian CEO in 2020. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to help us out, feel free to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory and share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.